Welcome to Minutes Keep. I'm Daniel. In this podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about critical hits. But I also have a few calls, which I'll do at the end. We've got some calls from Direct Sun and from Jason over at the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. But let's get into this. So, critical hits. Now, when we're talking about OD&D with Chainmail, as I've mentioned many times, there's multiple ways of doing combat. You've got your abstracted combat, which is troop. You've got your man-to-man combat. You have your fantastic combat, fantasy combat. And the man-to-man combat is your real gritty down down to it combat, right? It's weapon versus armor. It's individual strikes. It's hit points, at least the way I'm using it. And if you, when you, if you're unfamiliar with the system, you roll two d six trying to beat a target number based on your weapon versus armor. So if you got a sword and you're attacking somebody in leather, let's say the number is an eight. I don't know if that's accurate, but let's just say it's eight. You roll two d six. You add any bonuses, subtract any penalties, and eight or better, you score damage. That's basically how it works. If you roll two sixes, that is a critical hit, to which you do maximum damage, which is basically six points of damage. That's how I've been running it. Works really well. But I was looking through OD&D. You know, when you get when you're looking at the third book of OD&D, you get to that part where there's all the like the drawings of like the castles and stuff. And a lot of times that's kind of where I stop when I'm just kind of flipping through. But I kept on flipping. And in fact, I was actually going to make the podcast this week about uh, upkeep because there's a whole bunch, there's a whole section in there on upkeep that I kind of always forget is there. But then I flipped a little further and I got to aerial combat, which I've used before. And it's really cool because when you do aerial combat in OD&D, you roll effectively a hit location. So if you are flying on a hippogriff and you're shooting at somebody who's flying on a dragon, you shoot your arrow, assuming you make a hit, you roll based on your position relative to them, front, side, top, bottom, tail. And then based on that, you can hit the ride or the head, the wing, the body, or the tail. Once you score the hit location, you look below and there's a critical hit table. Each of the locations has a chance of scoring a critical hit And if you do score a critical hit, there are various results that can happen. So translating this back to -to man-to-man combat, if I look at this table and I say, well, my position relative to the subject is going to be front, side, and I guess back, right? And obviously there's no rider. So my hit locations would be head, wing, as it's stated here, which would be a limb, right? Body. And then they also list tail, but again, we can forget about that for this because we're assuming humanoid types fighting in armor. We can just not worry about the tail. Because frankly, if you're attacking them from the back and you score body, that's effectively the same, right? So what we've got here is you need to know if you're in the front or back of them or on the side. Okay, so your relative position to them, if you're flanking them, whatever. And then once you know that, you can roll to see if you hit them in the head, a limb, or the body. Easy as that, right? Now, I'm not going to want to use this for every attack because I don't think it's really needed. Instead, I'm going to combine these tables and use them as a critical hit option. We haven't play tested this yet, as I just came up with it this morning, <laughs> but I think it's going to work. So I'm going to kind of run through it and we'll go from there. Hopefully some of it's making sense. Pull out your OD&D book three, page 27, if you want to look at this. So hit locations, position, front, 
Now, I'll start off by saying, I'll, let me interrupt myself, that these tables are percentile tables and D10 tables, but of course, I only use D6s in my game, so I'm translating this that way. So again, my hit location is as follows. Hit location, position of attacker, front, back, side. Now, assuming that you hit score a critical hit, that is you roll double sixes when you're attacking somebody on man-to-man -man combat, that is the only time you roll here, okay? So let's say I score double sixes. Front, I roll a d6. A one hits them in the head. A two through three hits them in a limb, which is more likely an arm, but if you wanted to get more granular, you could do leg, have a 50-50 for arm or leg or however you want to do that. And then four through six hits them in the body. Because I think if you're in front of somebody, that's the most likely uh, spread. If you're on the side of them, you're flanking them, you, uh, a score of a one hits them in the head, a score of a two through four hits them on one of their limbs and a five through six hits them in the body. Because it's more likely you're going to hit them in the arm if you're on the side of them than hit them in the body because their arm's kind of blocking that, right? <laughs> so now we've got a system of, and of course back is exactly the same as front, except if obviously you hit them in the body, <laughs> you know, on the back, then you hit them in the back. And this could be, it, it's not really relevant for armor class or anything, because at this point we've already established they've been hit with the critical hit. So you don't have to worry about, well, the back is less armored or the front is less armored, any of that stuff. It's just a location. So once we know our location, we don't need to worry about probability of critical hit because this only happens on a critical hit. Now, the flyer has a few different options. I'm going to read those first, and I'm going to tell you how I'm going to change those. The first option is speed reduced by half. We're eliminating that. The next option is dive and land. I'm going to use this, but we'll talk about it. The next action is withdraw from battle. And then the final action is crash dead in the air. So thinking about that in a normal melee combat, what I'm going to do is say dive and land. Effectively, if you think about that, if you're on your hippogriff and, and you are forced to dive and land, you're effectively still in the combat, but not able to fight in your normal way. So I'm going to treat that as a stun. If you score that, then they are stunned for their next actions. So if you if you went first, then you'll get to go after them twice. If they already went once, then, well, I guess no matter what, you'll get to go after them twice, right? If you get withdraw from battle, they're going to run. Now, if it is a player character, obviously we do not want to remove people's agency, but we can say that it's a pushback. They're removed from melee. They'll need to move back into melee if they want to attack. So they're kind of pushed back, which will give the attacker an opportunity to take off, basically. And then finally, crash dead in air is going to be defeated. Because as we talked about before, I like to use defeated versus dead. Now, clearly, if you score a defeated critical hit against somebody, you can say, I kill them. That's totally fine. Or you can say, I knock them out, whatever. That's, that's up to you. Now, the way I've broken this down is if you hit somebody, and again, these are only with critical hits. If you hit them in the head, you then roll another d6. One or a two is the they're stunned. Three through four, they retreat. Five or six, dead. Now, I know that seems pretty extreme, but remember, you've got to roll double sixes on your attack. You need to roll a one for the hit location and then a five or a six here. So the chance of instantly defeating somebody is pretty low when you really think about it. If you hit somebody in a limb, one or two is stunned, three through six, they retreat. Much better chance of them 
retreating out of battle when they get hit in the limb because we can assume that they're less capable fighters when their limb is damaged, right? So we're thinking about it like that. There is no chance of instant uh, defeat when you hit them in the limb. Finally, when you hit them in the body, a one or a two is stunned, three through five is withdraw from battle, and only a six is an instant kill or defeat. So what this does, it sets us up where we're normally using the hit points, but if you happen to score a critical hit, you then have this a chance of taking them out of the battle, either for one round, well, they will definitely be taken out of the battle for at least one round, if not completely defeated with that single hit. You could get super lucky, and I'm okay with that. Now, again, if we're going to treat this for PCs, we think if you're getting hit with a critical hit and you get a stun hit, that means that you don't get to go next round. If you get a run or retreat, you are pushed out of melee. The PC can then at that point choose to run because they're no longer in melee, which means that they can actually use it as a way to escape if they want, if they're, if they're, if they're losing. Or the enemy could do that, right? Because they pushed you out of melee. Finally, defeat. And when you're defeated in OD&D with Chainmail, you basically are reduced to zero hit points. So effectively, they are dropped down to zero hit points and they are out of it until they can heal up. That is the incredibly lucky shot, and it's not going to happen very often, but I guess we'll find out in playtesting. I would love to know what you think about this, how you think about, what do you think about critical hits in general? Do you think using hit location charts are a good idea? Would you use the hit location chart as it is just straight up? Because let's use it for every hit. They have a one in six chance or maybe a two in six chance on a headshot of being a critical, and then you worry about this. Otherwise, it just does damage. Let me know. I'd be super interested. But before you call in, I guess you could stop the podcast and call in. I was going to say before you call in, but the next thing we're going to do is we're going to take some calls from DirectSun. Hey, this is DirectSun. I got a question for you, Daniel. So I watched your Darkness episode, and I love the idea of Darkness. I'm confused on old school rules for torches. I know at some point, torches blow out. I'm confused as to what stops a party in that situation from, from lighting another torch. I think in BX, um, you can light a torch uh, one out of three. You have a chance to light a torch in a round. Um, <clears throat> I mean, and it seems like if you're not in combat, it's not a, a difficult thing if your light sources all go out at the same time, maybe it takes a little bit longer, but do you just make it take a full 10 minutes, a full uh, turn instead of a round uh, to light a torch, like fumble around, try and find a new torch and use your, uh, your Tinder box and stuff to do it in the dark and then say, okay, there's 10 minutes, there's another turn. So there's another opportunity for, for enemies or monsters to come in. In that case, then I could see that being a bad thing at that time. Um, but I'm not sure. Uh, what would you do? Okay, bye-bye. To clarify, I mean, like when a gust of wind blows out all of the torches, suddenly, unexpectedly, and the characters are scrambling to get their uh, light sources relit. So, yeah, I can see that being an issue if they're directly in combat, but if they're just slowly walking around, um, what kind of excitement 
does that give? What kind of uh, a challenge does that give that happening randomly? Thanks for the question. Uh, that was direct son, uh, as noted. And he's referring to my YouTube video that I made on darkness. And right, that's a very good question. Now, I think that you've got to kind of put it situationally, right? Like you don't want the torches to blow out all the time. The idea is that you're going to have a possibility that a torch might blow out just at the wrong time. So I think to use it effectively, we want to, uh, well, two, ten, two things, first of all, <laughs> let me go on a tangent for a second. Typically, if I'm going to have like winds, like possibly blow out a torch, you're going to telegraph it, right? And part of that comes down to the idea of you're just adding that fear like, oh man, the torch might go out. Now, sure, you could probably light it pretty quickly again, but consider that if it's in the dark, right? So you might want it to take one full turn to, to get a torch out. And then you might roll for Wandering Monster, but it kind of depends on where you are. I think the most useful times would be when the characters are trying to do something. Like, let's say they're at a chasm in a dungeon. So they're at this, like, weird, like, choke point, And the winds are blowing and the torches are kind of going out. And they're thinking, okay, are we going to start crossing this bridge and our torches are going to go out and it's going to be a problem? Maybe we need a lantern, you know, or should we, you know, maybe have somebody back up and stay, you know, in the tunnel further back so their torch doesn't burn out so we can quickly light another one. You want to basically set it up so you're creating a puzzle or an interesting thing. I don't think just having it blow out, period, with the party in the dark and then having, you know, then suddenly a monster jumps out would necessarily be fun. As you said, it really comes down to a situational thing. So I probably, so to answer the question, I probably wouldn't have the torch blow out randomly which is why one reason why i'm not super into the what they call the loaded uh die that people use which is kind of like you just roll one d6 and that like on a one there's a random monster on a two you hear a sound on a three your torch blows out you know i kind of like the idea that the, the party is at least cognizant of the idea that torches might blow out and i always just kind of i mean not to take away player agency but when i'm playing and we get to like turn five and their torches are going to blow, blow it. I just say, you know, uh, your torches are running out. So you're going to want to light a new one because they would know that. Right. So we don't want the party to necessarily end up in the darkness unless there's, unless they screw up or something happens, a trap, maybe a bunch of kobolds. So here's a classic example of when I actually did use this. Now I'm thinking about it <laughs> is the party had a lantern and they were, <laughs> one of the party members put it down on the ground because they want to use their shield and sword when they were fighting this group of kobolds that suddenly jumped out at them. Well, one of the kobolds grabbed the lantern and ran away with it, <laughs> leaving the party basically in the dark, but, you know, very briefly. But that was a situation where, you know, because the, the character did something, there was an opportunity that this, the kobold being smart, because they can see in the dark, was able to, <laughs> to basically mess with them. So, yeah, maybe they throw water on the party's torches. I mean, this is the kind of strategy that might happen. So this is where a lantern might be superior and why a lot of people use lanterns eventually. Personally, I'm a fan of torches because I like using them as weapons. So it's probably a good idea to have both things on hand. But I guess to answer your question, if the party suddenly finds themselves in the darkness and there's no real reason that caused the darkness, that would be a challenge, then I would just have them light their torches and it would be fine. I don't think I would make a big deal out of it or even roll a random monster unless it just seemed appropriate. Hey, Daniel, Jason here, just listening to your latest episode, Fighting Defensively in OD&D. I would urge you to let them use each die and choose so they don't have to be all-out defensive or all-out offensive, but they can, you know, 
how many don't put two dice towards parrying and two dice towards attacking or you know whatever i i think that makes for more interesting choices for the pcs so just my two cents keep up the great work hey daniel jason here just watched or actually i listened in the car the consequence of darkness video on youtube great video uh, that turn tracker is great definitely recommend people check it out and maybe use it one thing you did mention in OD&D is that no player character nor any hireling anybody that works or is with the player character can see in the dark you mentioned InfraVision once which is there in BX but it's not in OD&D for player characters or their hirelings and henchmen the player characters hirelings henchmen can never see in the dark in OD&D. As soon as you hire that creature that can see in the dark, or you subdue it, make it work for you, they lose the ability to see in the dark, which helps keep the survival horror thing going. You know, and dwarves and elves and all can't see in the dark in that game. So that's an important point. What I like to do for torches is, I, I don't know that a turn is too long to light a torch, so the torch goes out in the dungeon, player's like, well, I'm gonna relight my torch. Okay. But that's going to take some time. You, you know, and, and again, I don't know that a turn is too long, but I can see that being super punishing in combat. But And it depends on the game you're running, how long the combat round is, right? It might be a minute, it might be six seconds. But it would take, in my opinion, a couple minutes to relight a torch in the dark with no light. A minimum, right? You, you know, maybe you know where your tinderbox is in your backpack, right? So you pull your pack off, you've got it in an outside pouch. You can pull it. I'm thinking of a rucksack, like an Alice pack, like we had the military, right? And, and really, they had leather back. But assuming the tinderbox is where they can access it easily, you, you know, they're going to pull the tinderbox out. So maybe a minute to get get the backpack off, get the tinderbox out, and at least a minute to light the torch, probably longer, really. So at least two or three minutes, however that converts to turns in your flavor D&D, to light that torch in the total darkness. And if you're trying to do that in combat while the others are trying to swing their weapons wildly to hold off the enemy so the magic users in the back trying to light the torch that would make a really really tense scene and i think that would make for a great game anyhow great video and i'll talk to you soon all right that was jason from the nerds rpg variety cast we have one more from him but i wanted to jump in here first so the on the first point the parrying yeah i, I agree with you i think that and if you didn't catch the last podcast uh, check that out it's not that long and i explained the whole thing there but i think you're right i think allowing them to spread it out might be cool and it also really makes for a situation where like a high level fighter for instance can really <laughs> kick butt right because you can totally if you're a six level fighter and you're fighting three first level guys you could just basically be like i'm going to parry three dice and attack with three dice and effectively they can't even touch you which is pretty epic and pretty conan and works with the high high power low power <laughs> deal that i have it going in od and d if that makes any sense and so far as the darkness, you know, it's funny you mentioned the infravision. So, of course, most of the stuff I do on my YouTube, I use BX as my kind of standard. Because I know OSE is really big and I love BX and I kind of started that way. So that's why I kind of immediately mentioned infravision. But 100% infravision is not for player characters, at least not in the Three Little Brown books. Uh, for those young kids that get into Greyhawk and stuff, they I think they have infravision. But And to really nail the point, point home... Infravision, I had to check, but Infravision is a third level spell. It's a third level spell up with fly, hold person, dispel magic fireball, right? Protection from evil 10 foot radius. That's how important 
they thought infrared was or how powerful they thought infrared was. So, and it really is, right? Being able to see in the dark in a game where there you're potentially, you know, only the monsters can see in the dark is a very powerful thing. And while it might seem odd, I, in multiple times in the uh, Hyperborea campaign I ran, one of the player characters had the, I don't know if it was called infrared, I think it was actually, they had the, the spell, the high level spell that you could see in the dark. And they used it a bunch. And because in Hyperborea, most things can see in the dark, it really gave an advantage, right? Because that one player character that could sneak ahead, being able to see completely in the dark, can move up on creatures or other things that can't see in the dark and really, yeah, <laughs> really kick butt. So, yes, using darkness effectively is, I think, something that we hand wave a lot. And I think by using, which is what the video is about, I think by using it in more of a survival horror vibe, I think you can really get a lot of mileage out of it. Insofar as how long it takes to light, I mean, yes, right? I, I think you're right. Accurately, it's hard to do things in the dark. Having done things in the dark, <laughs> I can tell you. But I think, too, like I uh, said with Direct Sun, I think that it really depends on how fun it is for the game, right? If you feel like you're blowing... The, and again, it also comes down to if the player characters did something that was, you know, on them, right? <laughs> like if they had one torch in their hand and they're looking down a pit and they just drop a torch down the pit to see what's down there without lighting another one first. Okay, that's your opportunity to be like, well, they kind of screwed up, so maybe I will make a wandering monster roll. But if you have the torch blow out for no good reason and then just roll a wandering monster check, I don't know if that's as fun to do unless it's something you really telegraph and do a bunch. Because I agree with you, it's probably hard and will take time to light something up in the dark. Again, this is not something that in part of the blog post, it, so if you watch my video, I talk about, there was a blog post that I read, or I think I might have heard it on blogs on tape, and the person was saying that being trapped in the dark was no fun and kind of stupid, and why do we even track torches? Because it never happens. No DM would ever do it because you're just going to die. And that was kind of the point of the whole video was there's lots of awesome stuff to happen when you're in the dark. But my point being is that you need to make it, you, know, you can't be never worrying about light and then all of a sudden have somebody's torches blow out and then go, oh, wandering monster, wandering monster, you can't light it. Because I feel like that would be a little bit of a gotcha, right? You want to telegraph this stuff nicely, like maybe have it start to blow out. And then when the players look nervous, be like, well, you know, it's going to take you a full turn to light a torch in the dark. And then they might say, oh, well, hold on, then I'm going to take my tinderbox and hold it in my hand. Will that make it take less time? You know, because this way they can use their own player skill or however you want to call it to kind of overcome these things right or they might say okay you know what i'm going to do is i'm going to take a uh, a small piece of uh, wool let's say from my my hooded cloak and cut it off and light it up and kind of smother it you know how you can make like a little uh kind of how they used to carry flames and then you might say well how would you know how to do that well my background is this or, you know, hey, I'm an adventurer. I know how to do that. And maybe they'll convince me, <laughs> you know, and now you can do that. And it's easier to light the torch. So it kind of depends on how you're lighting it, right? I don't really worry too much about, in fact, I'm pretty sure in OD&D that doesn't even say tinderbox. They just have torches. So they're just kind of assuming that you <laughs> that you can light a torch. And you want to play with it a bit. But again, you don't want it to just be 100% punishing, I don't think, unless you really are truly running a survival horror type game. So there you go. And actually a place where, think about it, let's say a mummy, right, that's uh, susceptible to fire or a troll, right? Maybe a troll lives in a cave that has this like, you know, by a giant chasm where there's lots of wind, so it's hard to keep a torch burning. And they live there because they know that fire affects them, <laughs> right? So this could, again, be a way you could use it in your game that makes it fun and not just, 
Oh, your torch blew out. Let me roll a wandering monster. Because I feel like that's not necessarily the best way to handle that. At least the way that I like to play the game. In any case, let me know what you guys think. You can give me a call like Jason did. All the information to do that will be at the end of the show. Hey, Daniel. Jason here. Just listened to Freebooter 7, the Palace of Silver Princes. Cool stuff. So a couple things. I did get to play through part of that uh, Shandy Andy over at the Unguarded Treasure B-52 podcast. And now kind of, you know, the podcast is in slumber right now. But he um, he was running it online. And, and it was a lot of fun. The, as far as the what you're talking about, though, it's interesting because, A, it shows that they kind of expected you to play lawful characters, right? The you, you know, obviously you can play whatever you want by the book, but the game definitely rewards you in playing lawful characters. And we see this as well with magic items and the alignments of magic items and things like that, The where it's kind of skewed towards the lawful characters. The other thing, you mentioned illusion. And illusions are always interesting because of, you know, it really depends on the GM how useful illusions are. Not only as an illusionist and your illusion magic, but how, how easy it is for players to disbelieve the illusions or how all that works. Uh, illusions are definitely one of the bugaboos uh, of a role-playing game and how they're handled. So that might be an interesting topic for a future talk. Anyhow, great job. Keep up the great work, and I will talk to you soon. These are some really good points. Uh, just for those who don't know, the Freebooter podcast is my Patreon podcast. So if you're part of my Patreon at a Freebooter level or above, you get access to that podcast where I talk about various uh, adventures I've run, my thoughts on them, and kind of how I ran them. Anyways, the Palaces of a Princess orange version, which is what we're talking about, is is a very cool module. And we were talking about a bunch of stuff there. And I think Jason is right. In that module, there is a space that is a safe space where no monsters can enter, but you can only go there if you are lawful. And I think I say in the podcast that, you know, I'm wondering if a lawful group would leave their chaotic friend, you know, below and not, or if they just wouldn't go there, right? So I think that's kind of interesting. And on that note, in my OD&D campaign, when we started playing the game, I just told everybody, you're basically lawful until you prove otherwise, <laughs> you know, because everybody writes whatever they want on their character sheet. But I find that most people play in a mostly lawful way, at least as far as I would consider lawful. They do the right things when they can. You know, they're heroic, at least the people I play with mostly. So I, I would be curious if you play with mostly chaotics, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> and I'm talking about campaigns, not one shots here. Insofar as illusions, again, I agree with Jason. And what's interesting here is in that specific illusion in the Palace of the Princess, it doesn't give you a saving throw. It specifically says exactly what happens, how it happens, and how long it happens for. And there's no save. It doesn't say no save, but, you know, it's there's no save because it doesn't say. In other places, it'll say save this, save that. doesn't say. Now, some people might interpret that as, well, you always get a save, but I say no because it doesn't say that. <laughs> And so, you, again, call in if you have a different opinion about that, but especially if you read the exact text of this module. But what I think is interesting here is maybe maybe as a designer of a, an adventure or the DM who's not, like, improvising on the spot, it's easier to just do that. You know, when you're creating an illusion for the party to encounter, make up something that seems appropriate for that encounter. Don't look for some static rule, because I find that one of the problems with illusions and many things is that when we have a game that has too many rules that are specific, then things sometimes just don't line up the way you want them to for the fiction. You know, I, I was, um, 
we, we, the party had been in my OD&D campaign, they had been cursed. And at a certain point, they got to a level and the cleric had the remove curse spell. And, and you know, she got it. She's like, oh, I have a, uh, no, she has a scroll. I have a scroll of remove curse. We could just cast this. And I didn't say anything. One of the other players said, oh, no, this is a plot level curse. That's not going to work. <laughs> and you know what? They're right, right? You can say, hey, you know what? Remove curse works, but not for this because that's part of the world, right? It's way beyond what this scroll can do. And you can do that as a GM. I think you want to personally, that's not a character conversation because I wouldn't want somebody to waste a scroll. I would just say, yeah, you uh, you think that that's probably true. This is probably well beyond what a kind of standard scroll would do. You know, maybe if you sought out a really high level, blah, 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 you've already researched with sages. That's why you know you have to do this thing to remove the curse. Because otherwise, right, because if a spell can just do anything, then why wouldn't the party just cast a spell all the time? It kind of takes away any of the true adventure for high level characters if they can just cast or remove curse or detect evil. Why would it? Maybe not detect evil. <laughs> That's a weird spell. But anyways, I was going to say dispel evil, I think is one of the high level spells. And then just, oh, well, you know what? I have dispel evil. I can just walk into this, you know, evil temple and just cast dispel evil and the whole thing goes away. You know, clearly there's like plot level stuff that's well beyond a single spellcaster. At least that's how I play. Again, I would love to know what people think. You can call in as always by checking the show notes. Okay, that'll do us for this week. If you have not already, please rate and review this podcast on your favorite podcatcher. I want to thank my callers, Jason and Direct Sun. If you would like to be a caller like them, go ahead and check the show notes. You're going to find a link to the anchor uh, process of leaving a message, if you want to call it that, and also a link to my Discord. You can join my Discord, find me there, and send me a direct message. If you are on Discord and one of the other places that I lurk, like Audio Dungeon or Clerics Wear Ringmail, you can also just find me there. Also in the show notes, you will find a link to my Patreon if you'd like to support the podcast. I will talk to you soon.